Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biography of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Robert E. Lee. Now let's continue with part two of our story about Robert E. Lee. After the death of Stonewall Jackson, Lee reorganized his army into three corps, commanded by James Longstreet, Richard Ewell, and A.P. Hill, respectively. He then set out to march through western Virginia and the Shenandoah Valley, his intention to invade central Pennsylvania with the ultimate goal of the capture of the state capital, Harrisburg, and a decisive victory over the Army of the Potomac when it inevitably attempted to stop him. The invasion was an immediate success when Ewell's Corps overran a federal garrison at Winchester, Virginia, on June 15th. Other Confederate troops proceeded across the Pennsylvania border, and by the end of the month, Confederate troops were scattered all over southern Pennsylvania, their attempts to forage food and supplies ranging as far west as Chambersburg, as far north as Carlisle, and as far east as York. Unfortunately, Lee's cavalry under Jeb Stuart got separated between Lee and the Union Army, which was tracking Lee's progress. Hooker intent on keeping pace in a defensive posture. On June 27th, when he got into a disagreement over strategy with both Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, Hooker impulsively submitted his resignation. It was accepted, and Hooker was replaced by General George Meade. Lee's cavalry remained far to the east, so his spread-out invasion columns had no idea where the Union Army was. On June 30th, an advance contingent of the Confederate division commanded by Henry Heath, in search of shoes and other supplies, wandered into the small Pennsylvania town of Gettysburg. They quickly retreated when confronted by Union cavalry. As Heath's division was part of the corps commanded by A.P. Hill, on July 1st, Hill ordered two divisions to enter the town to determine the strength and composition of the town's defenders. They were momentarily stopped by the same cavalry who held out until reinforced by troops from the Union 1st Corps. Two other divisions from Ewell's Corps then descended upon the town from the north, helping to push the Union troops out of the town and turning their retreat into a full-scale rout. More Union troops arrived and set up defensive positions on a group of hills southeast of the town. Most of this position centered on an elevation known as Cemetery Hill. Robert E. Lee did not arrive upon the scene until midday and was alarmed by the spontaneous attack. He had given orders to not engage the enemy until the entire army was present and Union positions and terrain were properly assessed. With sundown approaching, troops under Corps Commander Ewell, who had received ambiguous orders from Lee, hesitated instead of attempting to attack Cemetery Hill. Lee ultimately decided to wait for the following day to organize his formerly scattered troops, who were arriving at Gettysburg with each passing hour. 
This was the first of several strategic mistakes made by Lee's subordinates at Gettysburg. Ewell had replaced Stonewall Jackson, who would have never hesitated to continue the attack. A breakthrough then at Cemetery Hill might have completely routed federal troops and ended the battle in one day. Lee, however, was confident that on July 2nd, he could successfully implement an attack that would accomplish the same goal. Unfortunately, Lee would have to deal with dissension within his general staff from James Longstreet, an opinionated and influential corps commander. Longstreet had not supported the northern invasion to begin with, and also claimed that Lee should adopt a defensive position and attempt to draw Meade's now fully assembled Army of the Potomac into an attack reminiscent of Fredericksburg. But Lee disagreed. He ordered Longstreet to attack the Union left, believed to be only sparsely defended by Union troops. This attack would coincide with a thrust by Ewell at the Union right. Meade's troops set up in defensive positions in the shape of a fishhook. Lee's plan would simultaneously force the Union commander to engage all of his troops and increase Confederate chances for a breakthrough. Ewell would begin his attack when he heard artillery from Longstreet's assault on the Union left. Unfortunately, Longstreet let his strategic differences affect his implementation of Lee's orders. Lee had met with Ewell in the early morning of July 2nd, and when he returned to his headquarters at 11 a.m., Longstreet had done nothing to prepare for his assault. Lee again ordered Longstreet to attack, but it would be five hours and 4 p.m. before Confederate troops began to march. They successfully pushed through locations that have been permanently etched into American history, the Peach Orchard, the Wheat Field, and Devil's Den. Union reinforcements rushed to halt the onslaught at Little Round Top, a rocky hill that served as a natural defensive position. Meade's precarious hold on the left flank of the line was maintained after Union counterattacks by troops who would run out of ammunition used a bayonet charge to push the rebels off of Little Round Top. Ewell's attack on the Union right flank, already hampered by a late start, failed to capture Culp's Hill, and after two days of bitter fighting, Lee had not administered the knockout blow he was looking for. After routing the Yankees on day one and coming close to victory on day two with an effort that was determined but disorganized, Robert E. Lee believed that a coordinated effort would finally succeed. His plan called for a resumption of the attack on Culp's Hill while other troops pounded away at the Union Center on Cemetery Ridge. He would also send cavalry under newly arrived Jeb Stewart behind Union lines to disrupt any attempt at an orderly retreat. Longstreet was again ordered to implement this plan of attack. However, he allegedly first told Lee that he should instead attempt to march to Meade's left and take a defensive position, hoping again to provoke an attack by Meade. When Lee firmly maintained that he would strike the Union Center, Longstreet complied but subsequently maintained that such an attack would fail. Again, he half-heartedly assembled troops from three Confederate divisions commanded by Generals Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble. In conjunction with Ewell's attack on Culp's Hill, Lee envisioned a massive artillery barrage to soften up the Union line. Then approximately 13,000 troops would march for three-quarters of a mile across an open field with artillery support continuing to batter federal troops hunkered down behind wooden fences and stone embankments. Lee wanted the day's battle to begin as early as possible. Attacks against Union fortifications on Culp's Hill began in the morning, but again it was not until midday that Longstreet organized the units to attack Cemetery Ridge. 
the Confederate artillery barrage finally began at 1 p.m. Meant to destroy Union batteries, this hour-long bombardment was mostly ineffectual, and Confederate guns were running short of ammunition when the infantry began its steady march, its objective a clump of trees at the center of the Union line. Longstreet was so distraught that he avoided giving a verbal command for the attack to begin. When repeatedly asked by General George Pickett if he should proceed, Longstreet finally merely nodded, and what was to be known as Pickett's Charge began. Ewell's attack on Culp's Hill, ferociously repelled by deeply entrenched defenders, had already concluded, and the artillery support meant to accompany the attack was halted. Lee's troops would attempt to take Cemetery Ridge on their own. The Confederate battle group stretched a mile and a half wide when it began to march. As Union artillery shredded the oncoming troops and ranks closed to fill the gaps, the battle line shrunk to a half a mile. Still, the Southern brigades advanced, close enough to be further decimated by concentrated rifle volleys. In the face of this murderous barrage, Cemetery Ridge was breached in two spots. One of Pickett's brigades, commanded by General Louis Armistead, successfully led 1,500 men beyond the Union fortifications before counterattacks and savage hand-to-hand fighting pushed them back. So many Confederate officers in Armistead's brigade were killed that no one was able to order a retreat any survivors finally fleeing on their own. Armistead was mortally wounded and died two days later. Lee immediately realized that the attack was not only a failure, but a disaster. On his horse Traveler, he is said to have galloped forward and greeted his defeated troops by saying, It is my fault. Of Pickett's 6,000 men, 3,000 were casualties, including all 15 regimental commanders. Other units suffered similarly bringing casualties to approximately 6,500 in less than an hour. Lee quickly became concerned that Meade might follow with a counterattack, but when he ordered General Pickett to prepare his division for such an eventuality, Pickett is said to have replied, General Lee, I have no division. Meade was not interested in following up his successful repulse of Lee's attack. Overnight, a terrible storm brought torrential rain to southern Pennsylvania, and Lee began the arduous process of retreating across the Potomac and back into Virginia. Ambulance wagons conveying thousands of Confederate wounded, too seriously injured to walk, their moans of pain amid the pouring rain further undermined morale. During this laborious process, Lee was forced to grapple with the horrendous cost of the Battle of Gettysburg. 4,700 killed, more than 12,000 wounded, and 6,000 captured. Meade's pursuit of Lee back into Virginia was sluggish and unsuccessful, but the Army of Northern Virginia was depleted by an additional 5,000 men, most of them captured in skirmishes during the retreat. The Union Army suffered over 23,000 casualties as well, bringing the total casualty count of the Gettysburg campaign to over 50,000 men. Lee's disappointment in his defeat at Gettysburg was so profound that he submitted his resignation to Jefferson Davis. Lee indicated that he was to blame for the loss at Gettysburg, and he questioned whether he could continue to meet the physical demands of military command. Davis emphatically rejected Lee's offer of resignation, telling him that replacing him would be an impossibility. Still, the situation facing the Confederate government was grim. On July 4th, one day after the defeat at Gettysburg, the garrison at Vicksburg surrendered, another 30,000 Confederate defenders taken prisoner. Strategically, the federal government had taken control of the Mississippi River and split the Confederacy into two parts. Not surprisingly, Davis declared August 21st as a day of fasting, reflection, and prayer, 
an indication of how dire the situation had become. The Gettysburg Campaign would be the last offensive foray by the Army of Northern Virginia. For the rest of the Civil War, Lee would fight a defensive battle to prevent the capture of Richmond and forestall the inevitable. In the immediate aftermath of Gettysburg, Lee was forced to send one of his corps, commanded by Longstreet, to Tennessee, where Union troops had pushed the Confederate Army of Tennessee out of the state. Although he implored Davis to allow him to continue to attack the Union Army, Lee's troop strength of 46,000 after Longstreet's departure made that prospect untenable. The war was also taking a personal toll on Lee as well. His wife was lapsing into invalidity. His son Rooney had been taken prisoner. Rooney's wife would die during his imprisonment. Lee himself had gained weight, suffered from heart trouble, and was no longer the dashing figure of earlier days. The winter of 1864 found the Confederacy in deep trouble. U.S. Grant had been promoted in Tennessee and drove the Confederate Army into Georgia. In Virginia, Lee's army remained poorly equipped and poorly fed, desertion a constant problem. In some units, the majority of the soldiers were actually barefoot. In the spring, with the return of Longstreet's unit from the south, Lee would again hope to go on the offensive, but now he would face a Union army with over 120,000 men. He would also face the newly promoted Ulysses S. Grant, named general-in-chief of the entire federal military effort. Additionally, Grant chose to accompany George Meade on the battlefield to directly supervise the effort against the Army of Northern Virginia. Grant's first attempt at an offensive in 1864 came in the Wilderness Campaign. Fought very near the location where the Battle of Chancellorsville took place, Lee hoped to manipulate the Union Army into marching through what was a dense forest of wooded briar patch, the perfect location to spring a counterattack against troops unfamiliar with the region. At the Battle of the Wilderness on May 5, 1864, Lee got his wish when Grant attacked first. After three days of fighting, Grant withdrew, but instead of heading back to the vicinity of Washington, D.C., he headed south to try and seize the strategic town of Spotsylvania, closer to Richmond than his previous location. Lee would have no time for a breather, and while inflicting more casualties on the Union at the Wilderness and forcing a tactical retreat, Lee had also lost 11,000 men of his own, losses he could not afford. Among the wounded was Corps Commander James Longstreet, who would not return to battle until October. One of his other Corps Commanders, A.P. Hill, was also physically unable to continue. And in the perpetual cavalry skirmishes between the two combatants, on May 20th, Jeb Stewart died in Richmond from wounds suffered at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. Lee anticipated Grant's maneuver, and when Union troops arrived at Spotsylvania, Confederates were already there. The predictable slaughter went on for several days until serious rainstorms called a halt to the fighting. Once again, Lee fought Grant to a stalemate. Once again, Grant attempted to maneuver his way towards Richmond. Lee was able to keep his army between Grant and Richmond. His entrenched troops inflicted some of the most lopsided casualties since Fredericksburg at the Battle of Cold Harbor, fought in the first week of June. Grant lost over 12,000 men, futilely attempting to overwhelm dug-in Confederate troops. Lee lost approximately 3,000. It would be Robert E. Lee's last victory of the war. Perhaps because of a frustration born out of extreme competitiveness, or perhaps because of an underlying death wish stemming from a sense of impending failure, Robert E. Lee would have to be personally restrained from joining the ranks of combat during the spring and summer of 1864. Four times at the wilderness in Spotsylvania, staff officers 
Other commanders and even soldiers would grab the bridle of Lee's horse traveler and turn him around with a simple, Go back, General Lee. Although Lee was inflicting considerable casualties upon the Army of the Potomac, the spring campaign of 1864, which would come to be known as the Overland Campaign, would cost the Confederate Army over 30,000 casualties. Despite suffering almost double this number, Grant ultimately decided on a new strategy which would emphasize the Union manpower and resource advantages. He would attempt to capture Petersburg, Virginia, a rail and supply center that, if seized, would essentially cut off Richmond from the rest of the Confederacy and force its eventual surrender. By the end of June, Lee established his army in a system of trenches that made the most of his lack of manpower. This maneuver allowed for a successful defense of Petersburg and Richmond, but it also turned the conflict into a war of attrition, a struggle that Lee couldn't possibly win in the long run. In Georgia, the news was even worse, with General Sherman pushing Confederate troops under Johnston back into the city of Atlanta. He was replaced by General Hood, but in September, Hood would eventually retreat from Atlanta unable to stop Sherman's attack. The fall of Atlanta and Sherman's success propelled Abraham Lincoln's re-election and removed any northern ambivalence about the Civil War. At Petersburg, Grant was content to let fall and winter ensue without any significant movement. Hunger and desertion would also plague the Army of Northern Virginia until the spring of 1865. But Lee's reputation would only surge as disaster befell the southern cause across the Deep South. His ability to keep Richmond safe was perceived as nothing short of miraculous. By March of 1865, Lee understood that he needed to do something dramatic to change the dynamic at Petersburg and prevent Grant's spring offensive. A Confederate surprise attack upon Union lines at Fort Stedman was ultimately unsuccessful. This failure would stretch Lee's army to the breaking point and Grant capitalized in early April, finally piercing Confederate lines and forcing a retreat of what was left of the Army of Northern Virginia. After meeting with Lee, General A.P. Hill was shot dead in a chance encounter with two Union stragglers, another senior member of Confederate leadership gone. Both Petersburg and Richmond fell on April 3rd, the Confederate government fleeing west to the town of Danville, Virginia. At most, Lee had approximately 30,000 troops remaining, his only hope now, a nebulous plan to try and make his way south to unite with what was left of Joseph Johnston's Army of Tennessee. But his army was now completely without supplies, and any willing soldiers would be slowed by pack animals too exhausted to move. Lee needed speed and flexibility to escape from the Union Army before he was surrounded. By April 6th, after several disastrous encounters with Union cavalry, 8,000 more Confederate troops were killed or captured, among them Lee's son, Custis. On April 7th, a courier from Grant, under flag of truce, delivered a courteous demand for Lee's surrender, citing the pointlessness of continuing the fight. Lee refused, but responded by asking for Grant's terms. When Grant's response was not specific, and not understanding exactly what force was both behind and in front of the remnants of his army, Lee ordered a final attack upon the Union troops blocking his way. The Confederate assault against Union cavalry was initially successful until it ran into two Union corps that counterattacked and bottled up Lee at the small town of Appomattox Courthouse. When informed of the size of the force opposing him, Lee knew that he had only one option left. To Longstreet, he commented, There is nothing left me but to go see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. Lee also refused to countenance those who wished to scatter the army and continue a guerrilla-style conflict, knowing that this would merely lead to anarchy and federal retribution. 
Although Grant made Lee grovel for a ceasefire, eventually it was agreed that the two generals would meet to discuss the terms of surrender at the McLean home in the village of Appomattox Courthouse. In an historical oddity, the site was owned by Wilmer McLean, a merchant who previously lived in the house used by General Beauregard as his headquarters at the First Battle of Bull Run in Manassas, Virginia. One of the initial artillery rounds of the Civil War landed in McLean's kitchen. After the Second Battle of Bull Run, McLean thought it safer for his family to relocate to a remote part of central Virginia. Now the final act of the American Civil War would take place in his living room. Lee arrived first. He was dressed in the finest uniform he owned, complete with a crimson sash, white gloves, and a rarely worn ceremonial sword. Grant arrived a few minutes later, perhaps deliberately still dressed in his filthy and mud-splattered field uniform. The two senior officers exchanged banter about the Mexican War before Lee changed the subject to the matter at hand, Grant admitting later that he was not sure how to formally ask for Lee's surrender. Grant offered generous terms, paroling officers and enlisted men, and asking only that equipment be surrendered. Grant also verbally agreed to Lee's request that Confederate soldiers be able to keep their horses and mules, which would be critical once they returned to their mostly rural homes, their sidearms, and he even provided 25,000 rations to Lee's soldiers, many had not eaten, since Petersburg. As Lee walked out of the house and mounted his horse, U.S. Grant took off his hat as a sign of respect, and Lee responded by tipping his own. Although Joseph Johnston would not capitulate until April 26th, Lee's surrender all but ended the Civil War. When Lee met with what was left of the Army of Northern Virginia, many clamored to speak to and touch the figure they still held in awe. Lee made some brief and forgettable remarks and then quietly retreated to be by himself, typically quiet and pensive, his staff recognizing that he was in no mood for interaction. Lee had reason to be depressed. His wife was an invalid. His own health was greatly compromised. A daughter, daughter-in-law, and two grandchildren were dead. His home in Arlington was now federal property and already a burial place for Union soldiers. His personal fortune was gone. Many comrades, including Thomas J. Jackson, Jeb Stewart, Louis Armistead, William Barksdale, A.P. Hill, and countless others had been killed. But to Lee, probably most troubling of all was that he knew his 40-year military career was over and that it had ended in complete and ignominious defeat. Lee remained in the vicinity of Appomattox until most of his army had dispersed, and on April 12th, he made his way to Richmond and the family home. Robert E. Lee was so famous at this point that doorkeepers had to be placed at his residence to keep the throngs of potential visitors away. Lee took to getting his exercise at night, his walks less likely to be interrupted by well-wishers that included occupying Union soldiers. A naturally shy person who did not enjoy this form of attention, Lee did submit to being photographed by Matthew Brady, who took the iconic picture of the general, hat in hand, wearing the uniform he surrendered in, standing on the back porch of his Richmond home. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln altered the initially forgiving attitude of the victorious North. The murder of President Lincoln was perceived as an act of blind vengeance that required that former powerful Confederates should be held responsible. To that end, a grand jury indicted Robert E. Lee for treason in early June, an alarming development that Lee personally protested to Ulysses Grant. Lee claimed that his and his soldiers' paroles insulated them from such prosecution, and Grant agreed, not wanting to be perceived as reneging on a promise, and the Union commander told President Johnson that he would resign if such prosecutions were carried out. Andrew Johnson ordered the indictments dropped. 
Lee was not comfortable in Richmond, and by the summer of 1865, he had left for various residences of affluent friends who put him up. General Lee not even sure as to what he would do with the rest of his life. He was 58 years old, but other than the military, he had no other occupation. He must have considered it fortunate when the rector of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia, offered him the presidency of the school. Besides a salary which included a percentage of tuition, Lee was promised a residence. In exchange, he would administer the college and be asked to teach a course in philosophy. Robert E. Lee accepted the position. Fittingly, after a four-day journey, Lee arrived on his horse Traveler, an animal almost as famous as he was. He typically ignored the school trustees' plans to install him with great fanfare. Instead, Lee opted for a brief prayer, an official welcome, and a walk to his office. His main function was recruiting new students and raising funds for the small school which was financially challenged and relatively unknown. Robert E. Lee quickly became a fixture around Lexington. He moved his wife and family into the president's house and began the process of transforming Washington College into a modern university. Lee could not avoid controversy surrounding post-war reconstruction and publicly maintained an attitude of reconciliation towards the federal government. In his case, his slaves were already freed by Lee according to the 1862 deadline set forth in his father-in-law's will. But in 1866, he was summoned to testify in Congress about his general attitudes towards the future and the future of the African-American community. He essentially responded by saying that emancipation was a good thing because it might allow Virginia to be rid of African-Americans entirely, a surprisingly prevalent attitude, even among some residents of northern states. Lee's tenure at Washington College was received positively, and he got a raise at a new state-of-the-art home. His portrait was painted by Frank Buxer, a Swiss painter commissioned by patrons in Switzerland to paint subjects related to the Civil War. Lee refused to pose in his uniform, stating that he was no longer a soldier, and instead he appears in a black business suit. Today, the picture hangs in the Swiss Embassy in Washington, D.C., only one of three portraits painted of Lee during his lifetime. By 1869, Lee's health was deteriorating to the point that he could barely walk from his home to his campus office without experiencing extreme chest pain. Unfortunately, medical opinion of the day continually diagnosed an obvious circulatory condition as rheumatism and prescribed cursory and ineffective remedies for his condition. Finally, Lee took a two-month sabbatical in early 1870 to seek warmer climates in the South and to attempt to regain vitality. This trip to destinations like Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina, turned into a farewell tour of well-wishers, all wanting to meet and spend time with the great Robert E. Lee. Lee returned to Lexington in late May, feeling no better than when he left. He spent the summer taking various cures in the region to no avail. In late September, he prepared for the beginning of Washington College's 1870-1871 academic year, on September 28th, at a meeting of the directors of his local church, Lee's last official act was to agree to make up the remaining $55 of the rector's salary out of his own pocket. He walked home, and when he got to the dinner table, he was unable to lead his family in grace or even speak at all. They sat him down and called a doctor, Lee clearly afflicted by some traumatic event, which turned out to be a massive stroke. Robert E. Lee lingered for two weeks, lying quietly in a bed in the main room of his home, surrounded by family. He died quietly on October 12, 1870, aged 63. His glorification began immediately with a name change of Washington College to Washington and Lee University, Lee having initiated both law and business schools as part of the school's curriculum. Within four years, accounts of Lee's death 
would include that his last words were, tell Hill, referring to General A.P. Hill, that he must come up. And then the succinct but eloquent strike the tent, Lee's typical final order before preparing for battle. Based on his stroke and the ensuing pneumonia that killed him, it would be impossible for Lee to even speak, much less articulate such an emotion. But biographies of Lee would continue to perpetuate this legend well into the 20th century. Robert E. Lee also became the centerpiece of the Lost Cause movement of former Confederates and their sympathizers, the concept that the Civil War was a noble struggle against aggression waged heroically against impossible odds. The conflict over slavery was typically ignored by this movement's adherents. Because Lee himself was careful to urge reconciliation after the Civil War, and his comments about slavery and race were ambiguous, he was the perfect symbol for such an ideology. Lee's reputation only improved in the 20th century, his dedication and military skill endearing him to Americans outside of the Deep South. His son Custis was named to succeed him at Washington and Lee University, a post he held until 1897. Custis also successfully sued the federal government to regain Arlington House, but after winning the case, he sold the home and substantial property back to the U.S. for $150,000. By then, Robert E. Lee's wife was also deceased, and the property was already serving as the military cemetery that would endure as Arlington National Cemetery. In 1955, the house would be declared as a national monument and memorial to Robert E. Lee. Throughout the 20th century, numerous schools, roads, and statues would be dedicated to Lee, this sentiment reaching a crescendo in 1975. When Andrew Johnson issued a pardon in 1865 to Confederate soldiers, he made exceptions for various participants in the rebellion, and these exceptions included Robert E. Lee. Although Lee applied for both a pardon and citizenship, these rights were not officially restored until an act of Congress signed by President Gerald Ford on August 5, 1975. At the White House signing ceremony, Ford stated, General Lee's character has been an example to succeeding generations, making the restoration of his citizenship an event in which every American can take pride. As late as the 1970s, counterculture icons like Joan Baez memorialized Robert E. Lee in songs like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Unfortunately for Robert E. Lee, his legacy and his glorification began to coincide with the other aims of those sympathetic to the Lost Cause movement, namely rejection of Reconstruction, implementation of racial segregation, and the subsequent Jim Crow practices that prevailed in the Deep South. Many of the monuments erected in cities like New Orleans and Richmond were meant as symbols glorifying racial segregation and racism as much as they were dedicated to Lee himself. Lee did not live long enough to observe the post-war reality of race relations in America, especially in the southern United States, but, based on the attitudes that both he and his wife expressed during their lifetime, he would not have found them problematic. Lee's participation in the Confederate rebellion was rationalized for many years as a matter of family, honor, and property rights. A truly ambitious individual would have realized that victory at the head of the Union Army would have guaranteed a prominent political future, as it did for U.S. Grant. Lee's refusal to accept this position has formerly been interpreted as a sign of his integrity. But the Civil War has inevitably become focused on the institution of slavery and its barbarity, and this discussion's fallout has precipitated a 180-degree reversal of prevailing public opinion concerning General Lee. Any historical figure, examined out of context and without complexity, can always become the subject of hostility and derision. Consider the statement by one of America's most beloved and respective historical icons. 
at the height of the American controversy over slavery in 1858, during his famous debate with Senator Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln explained, I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be a position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Robert E. Lee will always remain a complex and fascinating figure of historical prominence. Hopefully, the pendulum which initially swung too far in favor of insensitive adulation will eventually swing back from the current strident and out-of-context vilification to a more sensible middle ground. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Robert E. Lee. Much of the information for this podcast came from Robert E. Lee, a biography by Emery M. Thomas, and Lee, The Last Years by Charles Braceland Flood. There are also additional photographs and bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and, if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music